Welcome to the Mary Jane Experience. Unbiased, unabridged, and most of all, informative. From our mountaintop view here in Colorado, here's how we see the cannabis industry today. Let's look at weed. Oh, man. I gotta get back into it. This is gonna be difficult. Start recording again. Shit, we haven't recorded an episode in like a month and a half. We had to take a short break to get married. Just have a, a honeymoon. Quick commercial break to get married. Drum up some investment, some advertisers. Um, travel halfway around the world and back. Scratch a little tweeny belly. And now we're back, everybody, to your regular scheduled programming. It is the Mary Jane Experience podcast. I am your co-host, Casey Jones, alongside Strawberry Sequoia. We uh, we recorded this interview this morning with one of the more interesting people that we've ever interviewed. We got some scientific facts to crack some of the myth out there in the world, specifically with use of CBD and cannabis during pregnancy. Asterisk, we are not talking about use of cannabis during parenting. We are talking about use of cannabis specifically during pregnancy. Strawberry Sequoia, let's dive into it. Who'd you talk to this morning? So I talked to neuroscientist Andrew Scheyer, and hopefully I'm not butchering your name, Andrew, but somehow we didn't go over that. <laughs> and Andrew got into his work studying the long-term consequences of cocaine addiction. And I'll let him explain more about that. Eventually led him to studying cannabinoids and he is now working on the long-term consequences of cannabinoid exposure during pre- and perinatal periods of pregnancy, um, which would be breastfeeding, and all the way up through adolescence when the brain is developing. Yeah. So, like, he has these extensive studies that he's done on cannabis and pregnancy and how that has affected people. I mean, this is, like, a really long study. Yeah, and and one point that he did make, which we'll hear from him in a second, um, is he he has a huge data set of information. He's done these studies not only in mice, in labs, and control sets, but he's also um, pulled a lot of information um, from mother's experience and then studying adolescents. So it's great. it was a great study. So. Definitely. So let's start out with hearing his history, how he got into this, and what he's doing. Sure. So uh, I'm a neuroscientist. I began my uh, career, at least this part of it, um, doing my thesis, my PhD thesis in Chicago with Marina Wolf. We were working on uh, the long-term consequences of uh, cocaine addiction. Um, And one of the things we found was that uh, the cannabinoid system in the brain is changed as it is with many addictive drugs. And that sort of led me to a career studying cannabinoids. 
so about four years ago, I finished my uh, doctoral thesis and started working here in Marseille, southern France, on um, the long-term consequences of cannabinoid exposure during what we call um, vulnerable windows of development. So our research focuses both on in utero, so consumption during pregnancy, uh, as well as the early perinatal period, which would be breastfeeding, and then all the way up through adolescence when the brain is still developing. So my expertise in particular is electrophysiology, which is the study of how neurons communicate with each other. Uh, but within the lab, we also do a lot of behavioral work and uh, I do a lot of writing as well. Uh, and that's, I believe, how we connected. So that's a little background and what he's up to. We started with the probably fairly decently known fact that with legalization and with our efforts of destigmatization, there have been reports of much higher use of cannabis in pregnant women. And, you know, destigmatization is a great thing in a lot of ways, but it may not be the best thing for cannabis use while women are pregnant. And Andrew commented on that. Yeah, and some of that is a little bit hard to track because especially, I mean, even still now with a lot of states in the United States uh, decriminalizing or legalizing cannabis, the self-reported use, which is how we get most of these statistics, is still kind of a sketchy measure. People are not super open about their drug use, especially when it comes to their children, because federally it's still an illegal drug employers can still discriminate even in states where it is legal and so we have indeed seen a rise in the statistics um, for use of cannabis during pregnancy and during the breastfeeding period uh, but i would put all, a little asterisk next to all those or take them with a grain of salt because they're all still self-reported uh, measures but yeah, in the United States, as well as in here in France, uh, we've seen increased use of cannabis during and following pregnancy. So Andrew makes a great point there in the fact that a lot of the studies around surrounding cannabis as a plant, because it's still a schedule one narcotic in terms of usage, uh, those statistics are self-reported and hard to get because a lot of people still live in a state that it is either still fully legal or illegal rather, or there are still employers that discriminate against the use of cannabis. So it's hard to even gather proper statistics covering this topic, but that's kind of what you guys went into next, right? The study of cannabis. How, do, how does it work? And it's specifically for pregnant women. Yeah, exactly. So because it is so difficult to study pregnant women and there's a lot of legalities there. I wanted to know, how do you go about getting this kind of research? A lot of it will come from, as I said, self-reported 
uh, use. Some of it will also come from blood work. Uh, when you're in a hospital, they're going to take blood, and part of that is always going to be checking for uh, psychoactive substances or pharmaceuticals or other drugs of abuse. So there's a fair bit of good statistics on that. Um, and then there's a few really great long-term studies that have been done uh, where they actually recruited uh, individuals, uh, thousands of people in the Netherlands, that would be the Generation R study. Um, in the US, there's also the ABCD study. And these are individuals who agreed to participate, um, the parents did, and we've since followed their offspring, in some cases, past adolescence and up into adulthood. And because the data are all anonymized and very discreetly kept, uh, the, the rate at which these people continue to report data is actually quite high. So the Generation R study, for instance, still has 800 plus participants that have been followed for uh, nearly two decades now. And so we have great data from that. But aside from that, a lot of the work is going to come from animal studies. And so in that case, uh, the pregnant dams or the lactating dams of rats or mice will be uh, exposed to cannabis. And then later measures are done on their, their offspring, whether that be behavioral studies or uh, looking directly at the neurons themselves or how the brain develops so it's a mix of the two so as we well know and we've spoken about in the past doing any legitimate science on cannabis is still extremely difficult in the current environment that we live in um, but touching on the fact that his data set is large enough that it could be scientifically assumed um, makes a good point. He had 800 plus people in that study, as well as the studies that he did on mice and rats. So it sounds like he's making strides in that direction. We've also heard this from Professor Cinnamon here at the CU lab, and he actually talks about this van later, which is kind of funny because it's a it's a big industry, but it's a small community of people trying to focus on facts. Um, so yeah, just interesting to hear from a real scientist how difficult this stuff is to actually capture. And then when you do capture it, some of the things that I'm always curious about is the control factors. So can you control the way that people ingest the cannabis? Or are you looking at people smoking, tinctures across the board? It's hard with self-reported studies to control but it is interesting that the comparison between humans and the rats is very similar. Exactly. And that's where we are able to say this particular work is more specific and more accurate than a lot of the studies that people have that are quote unquote anecdotal. Um, exactly. So talked about that a little bit as well. Let's hear more about the animal studies and the different ways that people are ingesting cannabis and how that affects his studies overall? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's something that especially, obviously in animal studies, 
that's controlled because the researchers are the one administering the drug. And in the past few years, there's been a lot of developments for uh, vapor chambers so that the you previously, if you go back historically, most of the animal studies, they're injecting the uh, THC or other cannabinoids. And that was simply because this is how most drugs are administered. It's very easy to control the exact dosages. Uh, however, we all recognize that intravenous drugs are not the same as inhaled drugs and they're not the same as oral drugs. And so there have been a lot of developments in the past few years in the animal research trying to control for those factors and trying to replicate more what we call naturalistic models or things that are more uh, akin to what humans are doing. But then, of course, what you bring up is a really big problem with the human data because there's, first of all, there's a huge variation in how people metabolize cannabis. So if you and I were both to eat the same, you know, five milligram THC gummy candy, there's a very good chance that our plasma levels, the levels of THC in our blood would be very different from each other. So that's hard to control how well people inhale or how poorly people inhale is hard to control. And then the biggest factor is there are thousands upon thousands of chemovars or cultivars of cannabis. And for probably 95% of the studies that you read, there's really no good way to know which of those people are consuming even if those people believe they know themselves what they're consuming, the accuracy of those measurements are usually pretty poor. Interesting. I mean, that just makes sense, of course. And well, I guess yeah. we're just going to need more research and time for that. Um, yeah. And a big part of that is, you know, the, the larger the sample size in these studies. So when you talk about, you know, when you, when you read a study and you see that there's 15 people in it, then you might, think twice about interpreting those results. Whereas if you see a really consistent finding across a thousand people, then there's a pretty good chance that it doesn't really matter whether you're smoking, you know, I don't know what the strains are these days, whether it's headband or OG Kush or whatever, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if those thousand people are all seeing the same, the same outcome. You know, this, this is very thorough and they're seemingly doing it right. So assuming that they are doing it right, which it sounds like. I think let's, we can more than assume. Yeah. Let's just, they're doing it right. Hard stop. Let's dive into the actual results of this study and what they have found. Our studies so far have, uh, what's published has focused either on the adult the long-term consequences of in utero exposure or the early life consequences of exposure through breastfeeding. We're working on the uh, adult consequences of the breastfeeding stuff, but it's not published yet. Uh, so for the in utero data, and this is uh, animals or uh, humans who have consumed THC during the pregnancy period, we see a number of things, uh, both in early life and all the way through adulthood. 
perhaps the most consistent finding across all of this is that there are deficits to both social learning and the way in which we learn. So there's something that we do called temporal order learning. And to me, the easiest way to think about this is how we all learned math. You have to start with really basic math, addition, subtraction, etc., And then you sort of build upon those principles to learn more. And so you, you create a foundation by learning one thing, and then you expand upon that foundation. And this is the principle of how our brains acquire and integrate new information. And both in animals and humans, and I should say here that one of the really remarkable things about all this cannabis research is that the, the data that we see in animals and humans is, is incredibly consistent. And that's not true for a lot of research, cancer research, for instance, we see very different things in humans and in animals. But for whatever reason, in the cannabinoid research, it's very consistent. So the, this form of learning is disrupted during early life. So that would be uh, during early grade school uh, or all the way up into adolescence. So there are difficulties with acquiring and integrating new information. And then the other very consistent finding is uh, social disruptions. And so that can mean a few things. In really young children, that means uh, an increase in what we call externalizing symptoms, which would be uh, outbursts or um, minor psychotic episodes or generally delinquent behavior. And moving on into adolescence and adulthood, it's, I think, what we would generally just call antisocial behavior. So one of the correlates of that in, in rodent models is what's called social memory, which is if I expose a rat to, let's say, subject rat to rat A, then later I expose it to rat A and rat B, it's going to spend more time with rat B because it's a, it's a novel experience because it remembers, oh, I've already seen rat A before, so I'm going to go hang out and explore rat B. And you'll see this if you have dogs that you take to the dog park, they'll do the same thing. If you have little kids, you take them to the uh, kindergarten, they'll do the same thing. They're going to seek out social novelty. And what we see in the development of, of rodents and in humans is that this seems to be broken somewhere. And we're not exactly sure where in the brain this is uh, disrupted, but there seems to be no discrimination between new and old experiences, which suggests, going back to the learning, that there are problems with solidifying information in the brain. As always, we are not here to be a hype machine. We are here to dive into real facts. This is one of those ones we were sad to hear in the interview because we want to perceive this plant as wholly perfect and helpful in many situations. However, it sounds like in terms of pregnancy based on this extremely extensive study of a large data set of people, not not horrific consequences, but there are consequences, right? 
consequences that are very consistent. Yeah. Looks like almost everybody that was studied. And this is looking at children from the day they're born up into their adult lives and actual social and cognitive abilities that are not functioning as well as they could. You know, and if you're a mother, like obviously your kid's not going to get born with three arms if you use a little cannabis. But you want the best for your child and cannabis is going to have effects that are negative. Yeah. And my mom always said since I was a kid forever, you're going to fuck your kids up somehow. But if we know that there are these negative effects with cannabis, maybe don't use cannabis when you have a baby or you're trying to get pregnant because there are consistent findings that it is in fact it does have some negative side effects. And so. there's always caveats to that. True. But we're not going to get into that until a little bit later. And on that note, it is time for us again to take a break and keep the lights on. Here is Strawberry Sequoia with a message from one of our favorite brands out there. Today's episode is brought to you by Tokativity, the global cannabis community for women. Tokativity hosts experiential events that focus on female empowerment and cannabis normalization through creative, social, political, and feminist forward activities in the local chapters across the globe. Their nonprofit social club works to empower women at the root level by creating social, interactive, and creative environments with a focus on plant-based medicine for women to explore personal and professional growth in a space away from the male gaze. Join the movement today at tokativity.com slash connect. And now let's get back into our interview with Dr. Andrew about cannabis and pregnancy. Right now, I want to, you know, hearing that, I'm like, well, what about if you have nausea and you need to take a pharmaceutical? Or a lot of people believe it's safe to have a glass of wine or two. So what is the comparison there? With the antiemetic drugs, which are the drugs used to treat nausea, um, those are incredibly low in terms of side effects. And, and uh, the only side effects that have been seen are mild deficits in immune function. And even those are very rare. Uh, but there are no real cognitive problems with those. Um, alcohol is a little bit of a different story. And this is something I think is really important to highlight because if you, if you go and you Google, you know, cannabis use during pregnancy and you start reading on uh, forums or on Reddit or wherever, you'll see a lot of people who have their anecdotal experience where they say, you know, I smoked during my pregnancy. I used it for whether it's recreational purposes or whether it's medicinal purposes and my kid's fine. And this is a story that you'll read across the board. And what I think is really dangerous there is that with something like alcohol, the consequences are very evident. A, a baby who has even mild fetal alcohol syndrome 
it's, it's very obvious the moment of birth that there is a problem and therefore you can address that problem and you can treat it. The, what we're seeing with cannabis is that in general, there's no real change in birth weights. There's, you know, they're coming out with 10 fingers, 10 toes, and two eyes. Everything appears to be pretty normal. Where we see issues is with cognitive development. And these are much more difficult things to pin down. And therefore, they're also much more difficult things to identify and to treat. So, yeah, there's, they're different is, is the, the answer to your question. Um, there are, in an ideal world, you would do take no medications during your pregnancy. Uh, but when it's necessary, it's a, it's a pros and cons game. There's, there's upsides and downsides to, to all these approaches. This is one of those times when we have to legitimately hold a mirror up to ourselves and ask the real questions. And sometimes you might not like their answers. I think he makes an excellent point in the middle there where you can go on anywhere on the internet and you can find any supportive information to affirm or back up your beliefs, but in a way that always could be dangerous, could be keyword. And in this case, I think we might have a legitimate case of that because we've heard even from family members Oh, I used cannabis. Look at my kids. They're fine. Blah, 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 blah. It's fair. That is an example of a specific instance. But when you take a large data set of 800 plus people and you have a negative correlation to a side effect, that can't be ignored. And furthermore, simply using the word pharmaceuticals has a negative connotation this day and age. But really, there are some drugs out there that have very limited side effects that can solve for a lot of the problems that cannabis is being used for that are tested to be extremely safe with zero side effect. And we have to be open to a combination of everything. And I think that's what we're learning with specifically talking to Andrew. And of course, these studies will be ongoing for decades and decades and decades. But in this regard, unfortunately, we found out that cannabis isn't the answer. Yes. So, you know, it, it goes against everything that I want to believe. I want to believe that a manufactured man-made drug is bad and that a plant is good. But in this particular case, I mean, you're not going to take a poisonous mushroom when you're pregnant. True. And there's a lot of, there's plants out there that can kill you. We do need to sit back and really just look at the facts and say, yeah, you know, I mean, if you have nausea, a lot of people, I've seen this on Reddit myself saying, I feel safer taking cannabis than this nausea pill they gave me. And it is very much the opposite according to an actual neuroscientist studying this. Yeah. So and a long term study with a large data set, which we need to remember is key here because anecdotal information when taken at face value can be dangerous. It's the same thing as, you know, people the antithesis to that saying, you know, oh, pff, I've been taking opium for years. I feel great. And it, it's the same thing. And we do need to really look at both sides of the coin here. And that's what we're doing. And that's what 
was so interesting about our conversation. That's our commitment to our listeners. So I had Andrew just comment a little further on, you know, saying that manufactured drugs are the safer route. For things like nausea or for anxiety, yes. They, they've been extremely well studied. And most importantly, we, we know what they are and we can control how much you're getting. Uh, one of the biggest issues right now with the cannabis industry in general is that there's, especially in the United States, there's basically zero oversight. Uh, there's, it's very difficult to know what you are consuming. If you look at some of the uh, studies that have been done where they've collected samples of edibles from dispensaries in Colorado, Arizona, California, Oregon, they find that what's on the label is very, very, very rarely what's actually in the uh, edible itself. And so it might say five milligrams, but that might mean it's two milligrams, that might mean it's 10 milligrams. And so to me, the biggest advantage of the pharmaceutical approach is that they're pure compounds that have been well studied and we know exactly how much you're putting in your body. With cannabis, there's always going to be a gamble that you don't know what's in it and little things like molds and microtoxins that are very common in cannabis because it's plant material, it has moisture, it's a nice hotbed for bacteria you really don't know what it is you're ingesting. And I think that's, I'm not pregnant. I'm not a woman. I, I can't make this choice for anybody else, but I would say that uh, it is my inclination to stay away from things that have that many unknown variables. want to highlight an excellent point there. The lack of oversight when it comes to product consistency. Um, we'll hear more about that a little bit later in this interview, but an excellent thing to be aware of and, and efficacy of labeling. You know, we, we talked to somebody recently as well in terms of it might say two milligrams, but that could mean five could mean one. So, you know, to deal with the large amount of variables that you're going to be ingesting into your body while also cooking another body. Cooking. (laughs) It's the best kind of joke I come up with. But while, you, while you're pregnant, you know, to deal with that many variables, it, it is potentially frightening. And, of course, everybody can do whatever they want. But, yes, know, Andrew makes a great point. So we talked and we are – an upcoming episode is with a company called LeafWorks. And they are hardcore about label fidelity. And what that means is essentially – that what is on the label needs to be true and a large portion more than you would think of cannabis companies putting products out are not are falsely labeling things stuff that you're eating and smoking right now yeah which is fine if you're just like getting high recreationally not fine if you are pregnant and so while the research may change and while things may get better Right now, the current state of affairs is that it's not safe enough. And there's misinformation out there and everyone's got this anecdotal evidence. And 
I mentioned that to Andrew and he had a really great response about anecdotal evidence. Yeah, there's a great, uh, a great line that my, my uh, PhD mentor used to say, which is that the plural of anecdote is not data. And it doesn't matter how many times you've heard somebody say, oh, you know, I did X, Y, or Z and my baby's fine. What you need to actually look at are these, these studies and they exist, they're out there. And I know that there are difficulties with accessing them or perhaps the language is dense, but the reality is these studies have been done and we have consistent data where they've controlled for these variables. And so just because you've read something 12 times on a Reddit thread does not necessarily mean it's, it's a reliable source of information. I have to out us real quick. We are guilty of this all the time. Well, not all the time. Some of the time we do say things like, though this is anecdotal, all signs point in a general direction. So we can only hope as though to support anecdotal information as though it was data. We've said it in the past. We'll do our best to alleviate that moving forward, but that's a great point. The plural of anecdote is not data. I love it. And something that we all need to be aware of. Exactly. And I'm not saying that anecdotal data is not, I mean, obviously it's not data, but I'm not saying there's not a place for anecdotal. It's, it's a, well, the thing is, is anecdotal conversations concerning cannabis are creating a need for legitimate studies. They so start I, I would the say that it's a great place to start. Um, but we do need, if this is going to be broadly used, we, it needs to just be examined, I think, on a, on a broader scale. But again, until the FDA gets their shit together, we're kind of in a, between a rock and a hard place in that regard. Yes. <clears throat> As Andrew said, a lot of these scientific papers, the language is extremely dense. And I looked at Andrew's paper and I tried to read it and I, and I did read it, but I was like, I got to talk to this guy because he needs to explain this shit to me. It's just like, it's, it's heavy. It's more than I could even understand fully. And so, you know, part of the reason for interviewing him is to put this in terms that is just more easily digestible. Enter the Mary Jane experience where we bring you unbiased, data-driven information on the cannabis industry. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so I wanted to ask him, okay, yeah, so THC obviously has some issues. Is this a study just of THC? Is it other cannabinoids? Let's find out. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. A lot of the research in uh animal models is done with synthetic analogs of THC. So they're drugs that at a pharmacological level, they work the same or similarly to THC. Uh, and then of course, there's a lot of research that is also done with THC. But the, the issue even with that research is that cannabis contains a hundred, a little bit over a hundred phytocannabinoids, which are the compounds that include THC, CBD, CBN, all these cannabinoids. So you add on to that, that we know that terpenes and flavonoids are also pharmacologically active. The reality is that 
THC is not cannabis. And so when you read studies and they're using even THC, it still is a facsimile. It's still a, a proxy measure for cannabis consumption itself. But as I said before, the research that has been done with synthetic cannabinoids or with THC has remarkably similar outcomes to what we see in the meta studies, these big studies of humans who are actually using cannabis. Because aside from perhaps a few uh, wayward individuals, very few people are consuming synthetic cannabinoids and very few people are consuming pure THC in the real world. But there's what we call in, the, in science, we call it face validity, which is essentially does something that we do in the lab in these sort of synthetic uh, situations, does that translate well to humans and the real world? And while that's not always the case, it is very much so the case with cannabis research. So it sounds like his research with synthetic THC is remarkably similar to THC you would see in the real world. However, I wanted to ask about other cannabinoids, like if you stripped all the THC out and just did something like CBD, would that be safer? So CBD is a really complicated question. Um, Anybody who tells you that they know how CBD works is either uh, misinformed or or lying. <laughs> we, I can tell you as somebody who spends all day every day uh, reading about cannabinoids and working with cannabinoids, that even those of us who are on the, the cutting edge of that research, we really cannot tell you at a pharmacological level how CBD works. It's uh, what we would call a promiscuous drug Uh, meaning that it has a lot of targets in the body. Uh, For comparison, THC binds mostly to what's called the CB1 receptor, your your primary cannabinoid receptor. It has a a couple of off-target effects, but 99% of what THC does happens through that one receptor. CBD, on the other hand, acts through at least five different receptors. Uh, it also interferes with enzymes. It also alters hormone levels. Uh, so it's, it's something that I would not necessarily recommend, uh, especially for, for pregnant women, because we just don't, we just don't know. It's, it's too big of an unknown at this point. Wow. I mean, that's, some real stuff right there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and, and just one thing that I think is really important is that um, if you are on any other medications, which uh, something like 60% of American citizens are taking at least one prescription drug, um, CBD, <clears throat> excuse me, CBD alters the enzyme that is used to digest those drugs. So all drugs go into your body, and then at some point, they're broken down by an enzyme in your blood. And 
a lot of people know, for instance, about the interaction between nicotine and birth control. Nicotine increases the enzyme that metabolizes birth control. And what that means is that you digest the birth control faster and it's out of your system faster. And this is why when you're prescribed birth control, you're usually told not to smoke because it makes the birth control less effective. So this same kind of a relationship happens with CBD at what are called the cytochrome P450 enzymes, which happen to be an extremely important class of enzymes that are responsible for digesting upwards of 80% of currently available pharmaceuticals, which means if you're on a pharmaceutical drug, there's a very good chance that taking CBD will interfere with how your body processes that drug. And this has been seen uh, in a number of uh, clinical examples with uh, epileptic medications and with anti-anxiety medications where it efficacy. And it can even change things like uh, the anesthesia that you would be put under if you were to have a surgery. So, so CBD is, it's a really interesting and it potentially has some really great uses like treating epilepsy, addiction. Uh, I think it's a fascinating uh, prospect, but it is also not necessarily something that I would recommend taking without purpose and without uh, research. And with that bombshell, of a soundbite. We are going to end this episode. That's right. We're going to split this into two more from Dr. Andrew next week, as this interview had so much good information. We really couldn't cut any of it out, and it really was one of the more in-depth episodes that we've been able to record thus far. So we're going to make it easy for you to listen. So that was this week's episode, part one with Dr. Andrew, Cannabis and Pregnancy. Stay tuned. Next week, we will be releasing the rest of this interview and podcast, as well as the rest of the blog at maryjaneexperience.com. As always, please follow, like, share, tell the world about what we're doing. We're trying to destigmatize cannabis and get true and real facts out there. This is a perfect example of that, this interview here with Dr. Andrew. And we will be back next week to dive even deeper into the topic of cannabis and pregnancy. Good night, potheads. Thank you, stoners out there and the can of curious. Anybody just dropping by to see what this plant is all about. We will hear more next week. Bye, everybody.